Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Today is Tuesday, February 21st. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Bank Julius Baer, and welcome to our weekly market update. The S&P 500 index was down on the week last week, and it was down on the week before that too. So that's two straight weeks in a row that it was down. Admittedly, both together are only a 1.3% correction. That's peanuts compared to the 17% up move from October to February 2nd. But if we're looking for reasons why the market's been soft, there's three that spring to mind. The first one is, well, seasonality. November to February is seasonally the best time of the year, and we're coming to the end of that. Actually, to be precise, I should say November to mid-February is the best time of the year because the latter part of February that started last Wednesday has been on average one of the weakest times of the year since 1950. Of course, these are just averages. They don't always work, but it kind of makes sense when you think about it that people would be all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at the start of the year And then around this time of the year when the winter gets kind of fatiguing in the northeast of the United States and New Year's Eve is a distant memory, but spring is still over a month away. Usually it's at this time of the year, if you live in the northeast of the United States, that you're in a bit of a funk. The second reason why the market is edgy could be politics. Actually, something happened that could be good in politics that I'll just mention in passing if you think that Trump is bad. Nikki Haley became the first major candidate to challenge Trump in the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. I don't know how much of a nuisance she will be to Trump, but if there's any important demographic where he can hurt himself, it's women. And she sets the potential for him to put his foot in his mouth because he probably won't be able to resist attacking her. The bad thing is more on the geopolitical front. The United States is giving an enormous amount of military hardware and ammunition to Ukraine, and Ukraine is burning through it faster than the U.S. and NATO can supply it. So now there's no backup in supply. Two weeks ago, giving fighter jets to Ukraine was a red line in the sand. But at the Munich Security Conference last weekend, Senator Chris Coons, who, by the way, is one of Joe Biden's closest friends, said that Ukraine needs F-16s, and the U.S. should have been training their pilots four months ago. One interesting quote that the magazine Foreign Policy picked up was from the Estonian Prime Minister. He said, Russia is firing every day the monthly European production of artillery shells. If that's true, and NATO truly means what it says, that it intends to give Ukraine what it needs, that means this war is going to be expanded exponentially. It's what American observers of the Vietnam War called the quagmire of war. In other words, a series of small steps leading to other steps that deepen the commitment. And before you know it, you're in very deep. Then there's the China issue. Right after U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met Chinese Foreign Secretary Wang Yi, he leaked a new allegation that China was going to supply war materials to Russia and did a television tour saying he used that meeting with the foreign minister to warn China about it. Then the day after Biden visited Kiev, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi went to Moscow, and Iran's president visited Beijing last week. It just seems like with every passing week, the separation between the two spheres of influence becomes wider and wider, 
and more inevitable. But that's probably not the real reason the market's been soft. The real reason is that the market's getting increasingly impatient for inflation to come down. It is coming down. But because the economy's so strong, it's not coming down as quickly as people hoped it would. If we rewind the clock to the beginning of the year, the good news started on January 4th. That was the day the Federal Reserve released the minutes of its December policy meeting that showed it thought it had, I'll quote them here, made significant progress over the past year in raising interest rates enough to bring inflation down, unquote. It also said slowing the economy too much would, quote, potentially place the largest burden on the most vulnerable groups through higher than necessary unemployment, end of quote. And it said, quote, most participants emphasize the need to retain flexibility and optionality when moving policy to a more restrictive stance, end of quote. And the market took that, correctly by the way, to mean we were going to get a 25 basis point hike in February instead of a 50 basis point one. So bonds loved all that. And if we look at the two-year treasury note yield as an example, it's a good one to look at because it's historically rolled over just a few weeks before the last rate hike happens. Well, from a peak of 4.8% in early November, the two-year treasury note yield fell all the way down to the beginning of February, but since then it's suddenly risen back up to 4.7%, so almost back to that 4.8% November high. And by the way, the six-month Treasury bill now yields over 5% for the first time since 2007. 5% for a risk-free government security certainly gives stocks a run for their money. Now, what these bond yields are reacting to, the reason why they're going up, is some newly hawkish comments from the Fed. For example, on Thursday, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester said, and I'll quote her here, it's not always going to be 25. As we showed, when the economy calls for it, we can move faster and we can do bigger at any particular meeting. And it's going to be driven by how the economy's evolving. End of quote. So the futures market has started to price in about a 20% chance of a 50 basis point rate hike in March from zero just a few weeks ago, and that's because the economy is evolving in a way no one expected. It's hard to put our finger on exactly what's going on, but one thing that does appear to be happening is that, well, during COVID, almost everything Main Street got swallowed up by Wall Street. People couldn't go out, so they stayed at home and bought things on Amazon. Now they're moving back to Main Street, and we can see that in the huge rise in spending in bars and restaurants in January, a 25% rise over January last year. To put that in perspective, every other item in the January retail sales that was up was up less than 7%. And that spending in bars and restaurants is something no one thought would last so long after the pandemic ended. It just shows you how difficult it is to understand this economy. But what it also means is that it is an economy that's not slowing down at all, despite all those lead indicators telling us that it would. In fact, they were telling us there was going to be a recession. Now, the Atlanta Fed's GDP now, it aggregates high-frequency data to approximate what GDP growth is, is predicting GDP in the first quarter of this year that it's going to be 2.5% higher than it was in the fourth quarter of last year, which, by the way, is far higher than the forecast that the consensus among Wall Street economists is penciling in. They're looking still for about slightly less than zero quarter-on-quarter -quarter GDP growth in the first quarter. 
So among institutional investors surveyed by Bank of America this month, recession fears have fallen sharply from just under 80% of respondents saying last month that they saw a recession coming within the next 12 months. This month, only around 20% think so. Probably because on top of the strong economic data, they're also hearing from companies that things aren't as bad as they thought they'd be. From almost half of listed companies mentioning the word recession during their third quarter results calls with analysts, in the fourth quarter results calls, only 12% have been using the word recession. And by the way, so far 69% of S&P 500 companies have beat the consensus estimates for their earnings in the fourth quarter. That's an impressive number, considering how much trepidation there was going into the reporting season. This week, we'll get Walmart and Home Depot. If they beat, given the consumers two-thirds of GDP, that'll be yet another sign how strong the economy is. So coming back to the market, well, the market worries that if the economy's strong, inflation will stay high, the Federal Reserve will be tenacious in raising rates to bring inflation down. It's pretty simple, really. If bond yields continue to go up, the stock market will give back all its gains. And if they start going down, well, then it won't. And it will really hinge on inflation. So as much as we'd hoped the inflation debate was behind us, it's suddenly very real again. And here I will state the Julius Bearhouse view from our economist, David Cole. What he said yesterday on our research weekly conference call was that inflation fears are overblown. And David points out that core services less housing is about 20% of CPI inflation. It moves very closely with wage growth and the charts of both show they're rolling over. Also, we know that the shelter cost and in inflation is going to go down because we can see in real-time data that the property market is softened. For example, according to the real estate agency Redfin, only 20% of homes in America are selling above their listed price, half the percent that were doing that this time last year. Then there's the falling natural gas prices. They're down 50% this year. They're back to pre-COVID levels because of unseasonably warm winter weather. And the other commodities are behaving well. We'll get the next inflation print for February on March 14th, one week before the Federal Reserve meeting on March 22nd. The chances are good we're going to get an inflation decline. The Cleveland Fed's CPI nowcast predicts it's going to be a 6.2% print, down from 6.4% in January. The trouble is, the 14th of March is still three weeks from now. And in between now and then, we have a market that's becoming increasingly impatient for inflation to come down. And some people say that even if the pace of inflation's declining, it's still over 6%, and the 10-year yield is under 4%. That's unsustainable. And to top it all off, they say, well, after the 11th best start to the year ever for the stock market, why not time for a break? As a case in point to illustrate this view, I would refer you to this week's Economist magazine. It's titled, Why Inflation Will Be Hard to Bring Down. That's what's on the cover. Well, that's not our house view. As I said, our house view is that the February inflation will be a good print because we know gas prices have fallen a lot. And if that's so, then bond yields will go back down and risk assets will go up. And at the risk of sounding like a broken record, because we've mentioned the magazine cover indicator before, whenever you see something on the cover of a big important magazine like The Economist, you usually want to do the opposite. 
already, in fact, it looks like bond yields are close to turning back down. To judge by the benchmark, the 10-year Treasury note yield, it tried to breach the 4% level yesterday, and it failed to do that. I might say, in conclusion, that one hopeful sign for the whole world, but especially for Asia, is that ground-level activity measured in China shows that it's basically totally reopened. We're starting to see that reflected in stronger economic activity, for example, in corporate borrowing, which surged in January, and in the property sector too. I'm told from contacts in China that the secondary market in Shanghai has picked up very strongly. And there are green shoots as well in the primary market, where, for example, the nationwide new home price index that came out last Thursday showed that home prices across China, new home prices, were flat overall in January after falling for 16 months in a row. And by the way, prices of new homes in Tier 1 cities rose for the first time since July. In Tier 2 cities, they rose for the first time since May. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now. I wish you a great week ahead. And I'll speak with you again next week. Goodbye. Wealth Insights is a podcast series where Julius Baer experts discuss topics from a wealth management perspective. Whether it's starting a business, preparing for retirement, or transferring wealth to the next generation, our experts provide answers to the relevant questions. Available now on all good platforms, search for Wealth Insights on your favorite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.